Hello and welcome. On this edition of the programme, Contemporary Dance in Ireland. As the annual Dublin Dance Festival is about to embark on its 11th season, Arts Tonight has gathered together some of those involved in bringing dance as an art form into a never more vital position within the performing arts in Ireland. Julia Carruthers has been director of the Dublin Dance Festival since 2012. Deirdre Mulrooney is a writer and documentary maker on dance-related matters. And Philip Connaughton, Maria Nilsson-Waller and Robbie Singh are dance artists and choreographers with work in this year's festival. Deirdre Mulrooney, something we often overlook is the history of dance as an integral part of the early vision for the Abbey Theatre, something very important to William Butler Yeats in particular. So it's fitting that in this year, the 150th anniversary of his birth, there's a an Irish dance show on the Abbey stage. We went along to see how choreographer Liz Roach is getting on preparing for her show, a joint commission between the Dublin Dance Festival and the Abbey. Let's listen to Liz herself before looking at the significance of the show, Bastard Amber, and its context in Irish contemporary dance. It has many different meanings for me. It's, it's the name of a lighting gel that was made by accident, was discarded, and, but somebody liked it, and it worked very well on skin tones. It's not that beautiful. It's kind of a pinky amber. It's not, it's not that attractive a colour. I liked that it was an accident, and I liked that it worked with the body. So I was very caught with that. And then I think there is that sense of amber, and the, you know, amber is a preservative, and amber in terms of time and... Amber is before you stop or before you go. There's a strength, because there's a strength to the title, because there's a strength to the piece. I suppose when I was first invited to make the piece, uh, what went through my mind was, oh, it's the Abbey, and it's, it's, uh, I, can, I can look at that piece about Yeats that I've always been interested in doing. But I realised there wasn't any piece. It was just some thought in my head that I would really love to do something that connected with Yeats and his poetry. Then it was about gathering all of the elements together that could help me make this big piece, you know, that could fill this big, beautiful stage. I immediately found myself drawn to the poem Sailing to Byzantium, but I also became interested and was very generously given a lot of information around his plays for dancers. So I was very interested in why he wrote plays for dancers, why he felt the need to do that at that time. And also, I suppose, the assumption that that Yeats was always a champion of dance, and I was just interested as to why he would be, seeing as he was the founder of the National Theatre. So what was this love of dance or this interest in dance? Through the plays and through all of the kind information that many people gave me, I sort of found this line where he was very interested in the physicality of the performer. So that struck me as not a million miles away from what I'm interested in seeing in a performer. So I felt very bolstered by that, and I felt that this is a line that we can take and this is a road we can go down. So I got very interested in the stage directions of the plays, and they were quite... They're very modern and they're very open and he talks about the stage being any bare space in a room close to the wall and he talks about, he allows, it's very open for interpretation about how you might set or stage these works. Um, And then 
I find myself coming back to the poem because the, the poem is so big and abundant and the images are, are romantic in a sense, but immediately evocative of these big life and death issues. So I, I just wanted that sense of passion and, and questioning and that sense of intensity in the poem. I wanted to be able to bring that into a piece. So in terms of bringing that together, it's a, a big cast of dancers, it's a big group of musicians, so there was a sense of a, a big group effort to make this work and to make it make sense. And I think the piece follows. It begins with moments of instruction from the stage directions and then dips in and out of the poem kind of looking at the ideas of the young in one another's arms, that sense of abundance in the early part of life, and then moving into an aged man is but a paltry thing, and how this, this journey shifting through. And also how he's kind of imagining the sp- he's imagining what will happen. He can't follow it in his conscious mind, so all he can do is imagine what will happen in the afterlife. On reading further about his life, um, he started to adopt ideas, kind of Eastern philosophies, and he translated the Ten Upanishads, and he kind of worked in in bringing these Eastern philosophies, which he had done earlier on in his life, I suppose, with the No Theatre. He wanted to bring these different ways of approaching theatre. So then I found myself very influenced by the kind of the calm and Zen-like feeling of Eastern ways of thinking. Which And then also I was brought to Patrick Scott. I know there's a lot of influences for this piece. I was brought to Patrick Scott because I think some of his, I think his meditation painting, some of his later work completely encompasses that perfection of form and colour and symbol and sort of brings it down to this very essential place. I think in talking about Byzantium, there's a sense of that kind of perfect, it's considered to be a time when everything was working perfectly, sort of, you know in terms of how that society worked. I think that's why he goes there in the poem. It's like a consideration that there's a real balance, everything makes sense. The design is by Paul Wills, and it's very influenced by Scott's gold meditation paintings, and purposefully so. I think Paul was really struck again by that sense of balance and wanted to bring that to the stage in a sense of ritual. And I think the performance because of this Eastern influence, is very ritualistic in places. Catherine Fay is uh, designing the costumes, so there's a simplicity uh, and lightness about those, and they're taken from, from some of those Eastern fabrics. And So there is, there's a sense of, of simplicity in the design. Uh, Lee Kern will be lighting, and I know that Lee works in those kind of open brave lighting states so I'm really looking forward to how that's going to be and how he'll interact with us and with the set and in that way and then Ray Harmon is uh, composing the music and he's assembled a group of musicians Zoe Conway and John McIntyre and Brian O'Connell and then there's this beautiful cast of dancers in how they are and how they approach work I'm just really delighted it's it's a really beautiful team I started in the studio with the dancers. I did little pockets of work leading up to that. There was times where we looked at the Dreaming of the Bones, one of the plays for dancers, and what made that. And that, you know, there was, there was things that emerged from, from that that then were carried into the bigger piece. Then 
last year we had a, a pocket of time together, the cast, where it was really just working with the ideas and looking at the text. And I think I came to it with a lot of different things. So I have that sense that the cast have just been trying to pick me apart ever since, trying to get to the three or four basic truths of the piece. I started working with Paul on the design very early because I, I felt that that was going to be very important. And then with Ray, we were working along all that time as well. So I suppose it started with the ideas and then people kind of responded in different ways and then we came together. It's really a, an amazing opportunity. Um, I have that... I was trying to think this morning about that, actually, about what, what it meant, and I realised that there has been such an environment of support in making the piece that really has been made possible by all of the different partners and people who have come together to make it. Um, and the Abbey, in a sense, can really do that in a way that I've never experienced before. Like the dance festival have been incredible and there are, there are many people that have come on board to make this happen. But you do get that sense of, of being cushioned by the, the size of the Abbey in the making of the piece. That has really um, been such a resource. All the years of work that have gone into this... It's very important for the people that have produced my work and then who have presented it and have made it happen. And I, I really hope that, that this is a moment for everybody where they can, they can feel, they can say, oh yeah, all that hard work was worth it. This music wasn't... It's more inspired by watching what the dancers and what Liz does. Um, it's, a, it's a first for me, so I'm really learning as I go. So uh, sometimes you just locally land on something that has a sort of a meaning when you see it and hear it together and other times you're shooting in the dark hoping something will work but um, and it's really hard it's, it's quite intangible it's, it's, it's hard to predict what will work but when you do hit on it you know just momentarily occasionally it's a, it's a fantastic thing to see and it's not it's never what you'd expect will work that's the thing I'm finding really interesting about it it's always the oddest little thing that is almost counterintuitive that seems to work initially it started with conversations with Liz and descriptions and reading Yates text and trying stuff out in early rehearsals and I would go home and and write stuff and record it as demos for Liz. And then she would try it with the dancers. Some of it worked, a lot of it didn't. And then uh, we'd carve it out from there, move forward from there. You suppose you should be always trying to push stuff, shouldn't you? You know, um, Zoe and John are uh, violin guitar guitar players, astonishing musicians in their own field. So I'm from a rock background they're from a sort of uh, traditional background and also there's Brian who's who's on percussion he's probably more in my territory and so we have this mixture of rock pop alternative music and traditional Irish instrumentation and we're trying to uh, make that all work and it it, it is working it's it, it, the, I suppose the interesting thing for me about writing for really small groups is it's fantastic because you get to play it all live and it's dynamic it's that beautiful dynamic of people playing together in a room and what's more you're playing together with brilliant musicians and these fantastic dancers
Liz Roach and Ray Harmon, composer of the music for her show Bastard Amber, which is based on Yeats's poem Sailing to Byzantium. Julia Crothers, how did this show with Liz Roach come about? It's a bit hazy, actually, and it could have been a discussion around someone's kitchen table. But as as Liz was just saying, and, and isn't it lovely listening to her talking about the work... It's been a long gestation period and the Patrick Scott idea came um, and then the other elements were feeding in gradually. And I can remember sitting in Fiat McAneil's office at the Abbey with with Liz and uh, and saying, come on, let's go for it. Let's let's do it. Deirdre Mulroney, uh, entirely appropriate that this show is in the Abbey this year, 150 years since the birth of, of Yeats. Um, and it was interesting to hear Liz wrote there talk about this assumption that Yeats was a champion of, of dance. Was he that? Uh, and, and how so? Um, yeah, it's it's amazing, actually, you know, that uh, W.B. Yeats, who's the Nobel laureate uh, for literature, was not just about words alone. You know, he was very much into in his theatrical vision about sort of the total work of art or Gesamtkunstwerk. And he had an amazing vision for dance and the body. And when he founded the Abbey Theatre Ballet in 1927, he had a vision of a miniature ballet russe for Ireland. And, you know, he had actually seen, he had seen Loy Fuller dancing, he had seen the Ballet Russe in London, and he was actually also very inspired when he saw Oscar Wilde's Salome, Salome's dance, made him then revisit his play Deirdre and um, invest it with a lot more movement and sensuality. And then, of course, when he um, encountered um, the No Theatre and the dancer Michio Ito, through Ezra Pound in London. This led him to writing his own dance uh, plays, four plays for dancers. Um, So when he discovered Ninette de Valois in the Cambridge Theatre, which was run by her cousin, uh, Terence Gray, um, you know, he just couldn't believe uh, what he had discovered in her. And he invited her to Ireland to um, collaborate with him in the Abbey School of Ballet. So he really did have a very prophetic uh, view for dance and the body and had a huge respect for the energy of the body and music as well. He was a super collaborator. How long did the Abbey Theatre School of Ballet last and and how significant was it, do you think, in terms of the development of both dance in Ireland and uh, an appreciation of dance within theatre? It lasted from 1927 until 1933. You know, Ninette de Valois um, came over every three months and she sent her um, pupils from England um, over to here to work with um, the dancers. They It actually coincided with the opening of the Peacock Theatre and they um, had their their school um, upstairs in the Peacock Theatre. But of course, at that time as well, there was also an Abbey Orchestra that was um, uh, led by John Larchet. So the performances, in fact, were probably all in the in on the Abbey stage because the orchestra would have been in the pit. 
and there would have been a live accompaniment. And, you know, there was about 11 programmes from the Abbey School of Ballet and it would have been interspersed with short plays. Equally, Yeats's vision was that he would have a supply of dancers for the plays in the Abbey as well. It was actually a really heading towards a physical theatre. Because so. there was that, there is that incredibly strong sense of movement and, and stillness within so many of his plays that, that seemed to lend themselves those qualities to, to dance. Absolutely. And, you know, as he said, he, he desired a mysterious art. And, you know, this is what he his vision of dance for was in his plays as well, particularly like At the Hawk's Well, The Dreaming of the Bones. Possibly the last commissioned dance on the Abbey uh, was The King of the Great Clock Tower, which Nina de Valois herself uh, performed in as well. Deirdre, you also have a particular Yeats-related project uh, going on at the same time as the festival. Tell me about that. In celebration of, of our dance legacy, I suppose, that, you know, is being marked by uh, Liz Roach being at the Abbey doing Yeats-inspired show, Sarah Owens, who is the curator of the art park at Spencer Dock, um, approached me and asked me to um, co-curate with her um, a series of projections to celebrate this. So um, we actually have uh, some beautiful images and we're going to project uh, Sailing to Byzantium and other um, Yeats poems related to dance and also um, Eric Pierce, uh, Patrick Scott's uh, partner, um, has kindly given us some of his uh, gold meditation paintings and portrait of Patrick Scott, you know, to mark the dance festival and also, you know, the, the thriving contemporary dance scene um, in Ireland today. I have to say, I, I really look forward to seeing that, that merging of, of Liz Roach, uh, Yeats and, and Patrick Scott and, it's, it's, and all the rest. But somehow uh, Scott's painting seems to match so perfectly to what Liz is, is trying to achieve in this piece. Absolutely, absolutely. And I was very lucky to have some uh, chats with Patrick Scott about um, dance and uh, modern dance in 1940s Dublin. And he was actually very chuffed to tell me that at the age of 19, when he first came up from Cork, he happened by coincidence to be lodging in the Dublin service apartments with uh, the Ballet Yos the most cutting edge modern dance company in Europe, uh, the world possibly at that time, who were here doing their anti-war ballet, The Green Table. And they actually uh, happened to be stranded here at the outbreak of the war because they couldn't travel at that particular point. So he was very well educated in modern dance and I'm sure would be thrilled to be included in Liz's piece on the Abbey stage. Yes, sometimes it does seem that everything does connect. Julia, is there there another point in, or perhaps several points in uh, this year's festival where we see dance and theatre meet, not just in terms of physical space, like the the number of the few shows in the Abbey? Well, for me, all dance is in a way theatre. Uh, it's a visual spectacle that often takes place in the formality of a theatre setup. So, in a way, I could say everything. <laughs> yes, um, all shows. But Sylvain Emar, who's coming from Montreal, who's on at Project Art Centre, the first weekend of the festival, has described this piece, which is called Fragments, as dance short stories. But again, it, it is kind of narrative. There are characters. 
there is a sort of beginning, a middle and an end. But I, I, I don't want to be ha- hidebound by the conventions of drama because, of course, we have to say that the brilliance of dance is that it is something distinct and different. And, of course, the challenge, in a sense, too, is that it challenges our perceptions of what theatre is or, or can be. And, of course, you have that thing where it's much more transitory, much more brilliantly ambiguous uh, a lot of the time and very open to the interpretation of individual members of the audience. Um, Julia, of course, the, the Liz Roach show, Bastard Amber, is not the only one on the Abbey stage during, during the festival. Um, two other very different and, and fascinating performances that people really should look out for. Uh, yes, I'm very happy about the fact that we have three very different shows, very contrasting shows at the Abbey this year. And brilliant that the dance festival has a full two weeks Uh, You know, we're running across the full festival at the Abbey and that Liz has some nice get-in technical time in the space as well, um, which is fantastic to have a dance piece that's so well-resourced technically, as Liz was saying. Damaged Goods, a very cutting-edge, cool uh, European company that moves uh, between Berlin and Brussels. And Meg herself is originally American, was from New York, but has moved across to work on, you know, on in mainland Europe. It's an extraordinary company of performers who are actually rather odd, as you can see from the photo images that we're using in our publicity. They're not kind of slinky dancers at all. And there's projections, there's a weird skeleton of a dinosaur that appears on stage. Um, There's some fantastic music. The sound guy who's coming with the company, Roy, is actually Irish, so he's delighted that we invited them to come. Roy Carroll. Then right at the end of the festival, total, total contrast, we have Israel Galvin, who is one of the world's incredible living dancers. I mean, talk about dynamite on stage. And he is using the traditional flamenco form in a very original way. He's a pioneering figure taking um, this traditional form into new areas. And with him, he has a flamenco guitarist Uh, who sounds like there are four or five guitarists playing. He seems to be doing something quite different with each finger strumming the strings. And then one of those incredible wailing singers. And they are, there's quite an interesting dynamic between them because they are brothers and they're clearly very competitive, these two musicians. So Israel is playing with that. And he's a very charismatic figure. And people like Colin Dunn and Jean Butler are terribly excited he's coming and they're going to be there on the first night. And I do feel that the traditional Irish dance, you know, the step dancers Mm. will really identify with him and his amazing use of rhythm and incredible facility with his feet. And again, within flamenco, there can be this extraordinary sense of of tension and innate drama, coming back to that notion again. Oh, big drama, yeah. Of what's theatrical. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's quite funny when he appears in the foyer after the show because you think, oh my God, is that him? He's kind of so ordinary in real life, you know, because he's huge on stage. Where have you seen him perform? Uh, well, I've seen him. He's originally from Seville, so I've, I, I have seen him in Spain. And then actually uh, the whole team from the Dublin Dance Festival office went up to Belfast to see him not long ago. So yeah, we a, mem- had a, a memorable oh, night, God, yeah, yeah, standing ovation in um, Belfast. Julia, it, you started in 2012. Uh, we, we talked at that time. And I, I think part of, of what you've wanted to do in, in your tenure as uh, director of, of the Dance Festival was, to, in a sense, to push 
for the experience of, of, of dance within Ireland. I, I just wonder, you know, those few years on, are you happy with what you've achieved and do you think you managed to, to make that push? Well, I'm very, very happy with some things that have happened. I feel that the, the festival is much more kind of known now. We're much more part of the, the conversation that's going on around the arts. And I, I feel there's a lot of dancers who have more recognition around town and within their artistic peer group. So I'm, I'm really chuffed about that. And I think that we have grown the audience a lot. I mean, you know, to quote the fabulous statistic, the audience for the festival increased by 57% between 2013 and 2014. In no small part, I'll confess, due to work that we did outdoors, uh, the, the Body Sculptures Trail last year coming from Austria, the Bodies in Urban Spaces, you know, the one that stopped mm. the traffic with a huge audience and the, the sculptures in trees and all over town. I have to say, I was quite happy when that one finished because <laughs> that was very stressful. <laughs> nightmare, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly, with the insurance. And I was just waiting for someone to get squashed under a bus or stuck behind a lamppost or something. But anyway, huge success. And so I feel the work that we've done outdoors does attract a very different audience. And, the, and I've had some very, um, you know, talk about job satisfaction. We had the show that was in all these, the, the swing parks, the one for children, a hip hop dancers working in playgrounds, it, um, choreographed by the Australian Sean Parker. And I remember cycling down to Ring's End to, to go and see this and being accosted by a little boy at the local shops holding my Dublin Dance Festival leaflets and saying, are you coming to our show? It's starting in five minutes. And I just thought, there's this kid who's completely taken ownership of this piece because it's in his local playground and he's been there for all the rehearsals and the technical setup and he's so excited and this kid gets nothing normally. And so then I am standing watching the show at Ring's End and there's this this guy in a wheelchair who's obviously nipped out to buy his Saturday paper at the corner shop and he's totally transfixed. He's stopped in his tracks to watch it. And again, I thought that's amazing because when did he see something like this? You know, and then you're looking at the photos of the piece and you can see who's in the audience. And there's this old guy who, again, probably someone who nipped out to the, the shops because that's what he, you know, he looks like. And he's just loving watching the kids watching the show. You can you can just see it all over his face. So I you know I feel that we've really hit the spot with some of that outside stuff, and we've got more coming this year with German hip hop dancers in Smithfield Renegade um, being joined by some of the local Irish, the Raw Edge crew, and Thomas Howard is will be performing at, on the seafront in Bray. We've we've hooked up with the Mermaid Theatre for that one. Uh, and he's also outdoors in Dublin. And then the big spectacular with probably over 80 youth dancers at Grand Canal Dock led by Dublin Youth Dance Company. That's that's the big one. Um, you've talked about that increase in, in audiences, as you say, partly as a result of, of moving out of conventional spaces into more public spaces. Um, what about budgets and, and financial constraints? Because most areas of the arts have, have, have suffered quite a bit in the last years. I, mean, I know that your funding has remained pretty steady but I presume that even in not increasing, is there an inevitable constraint or limitation in what you might achieve? Yes, there is. Of course there is. I mean, I do feel that the Arts Council and the dance team in the Arts Council have looked after us. You know, they've tried to champ champion us through tough times. And I do feel a real sense of recognition from the Arts Council that we've done a good job. 
and that you know we are if you like in favor but the resources are really tough um, and similarly from Dublin City Council I have a real sense of support and interest but it's things like the euro being so weak against other currencies that that hasn't helped either uh, because you're trying to agree fees in euros with Australians and the Brits and you're you know <laughs> you're struggling an extra budget constraint and I'm the person that's saying no taxis no taxis in the office because of course we just can't afford you know I'm the person that's getting the bus to the airport and you know I'll be hitching a lift in a minute but we you know we do crawl around minding the money very very carefully and have you seen a direct impact then on the work of company Irish companies that the festival would normally work with? Because I know many, many companies have had their budgets cut very severely. Yeah, I mean, one statistic I can quote is that every year we have the showcase of Irish art um, representing Ireland, which is a great entry point. You know, it's an open call. It's where a lot of the younger artists show their work for the first time, like Maria Nielsen Waller, who's in the festival this year with a with a, a new work, which is going to be very exciting. But she would have first appeared in the festival as part of representing Ireland. And the number of applications that we would get for that has, has would vary between, you know, 26 and 40. I'm talking about my, mm. you know, I've been monitoring this for four years. And this year it was right down. We, we, we had more like 17. So that was, that's worrying. And it means that there's less money available for project funding at the Arts Council and that people are finding it tough. And it's very interesting that this year's Representing Ireland programme is for solos because people can't afford to pay other dancers. So they're, they're doing it themselves. Maria, tell me about your experience uh, as somebody coming to Ireland, entering the dance scene here and now having your first full show uh, in the festival this year. What was that journey like for you? And uh, what's your own background in, in dance, first of all? Um, yeah, I was born in Sweden and left, I suppose, my hometown country, Sweden, when I was 15 to start training dance in Stockholm and then in Austria and then in France. Uh, and then from, from there on, I arrived in Ireland in 2009 and have been based here since. This particular time in the Irish dancing has been, I think, very exciting because of the Dance Festival, the Arts Council, but also Dance Ireland, who has been really kind of, I suppose, supporting and nurturing this maybe new generation of choreographers and dance makers. Myself, Philip, who's here as well. And I think, yeah, it's been it's been a really good place to be and to make work because there is so much going on and you really have a sense that things are growing and there is people making ambitious work, talented people. So I suppose I would agree with you that I'm very concerned that at this time when there's been so much invested and so much kind of going on that now the, the funding is being cut and it's becoming so difficult because I think, yeah, it's really sort of at this point of breaking through and becoming something very, very exciting especially I suppose different places at different times would have been those kind of bubbles when things happen and when things are boiling I think that's true actually because um, there's a lot of work across Europe that looks the same but the Irish work for me is very distinctive and that's why it needs treasuring and looking after and resourcing because it's different and it is very Irish so w would you say that there is, in a sense, almost a, an emerging Irish sense or aesthetic within within that? I would. You always feel there's someone new coming up and there's something different coming on stream. 
looking across the European scene, the Irish seem to be, they, they have a kind of wisdom about them and they're much better connected to, to other art forms. To Well, we've just heard Liz talking about to, to musicians, to people working with technology and design. And they're kind of smarter because they've had to fight quite hard for what they've got, actually. <laughs> we'll, we'll return to that notion of a certain Irish aesthetic in dance. Uh, but before that, I'm interested in, in how our dance artists have come in to their, their art form. And, uh, and joining us from studio uh, in Scotland is, is Robbie Singh. And uh, Robbie, tell me about your uh, entry into dance, because I think it, it's probably not the most conventional route. No, that's right. I have a background in uh, science. I studied physiology at Edinburgh University and worked in the science sector um, and then abroad in education. Throughout my sort of youth and early adult life, I'd been practicing martial arts. I I grew up in a small town in the north of Scotland, which um, it, it had lots of exciting things going on in terms of the the natural environment and uh, sports, but there wasn't an awful lot of arts uh, provision, I guess, uh, particularly not performing arts. But what there was was this fantastic martial arts school. I guess I've recognised coming to dance at a much later stage, in my late 20s actually, that my interests are really rooted in that, that early practice of martial arts and understanding body awareness and connection with with others and and alone so uh, that probably shows in my work um, but it's certainly uh, something I came to quite late on. Do you think that your education and, and exposure to a, a very specific knowledge base such as physiology has influenced your approach then to to your work? Absolutely I mean physiology is broadly around the the workings of of the body at all sorts of different levels although i'm i'm a relatively early stage in my my uh, choreography career the things that keep appearing cropping up again again in my work are around the sort of mechanics biomechanics the functioning of bodies uh, how how they interact with environment and object and uh, i suppose about processes physical processes which which is really rooted in in my physical practice and then academic study do, do you think you might have come to dance earlier if you had been not exposed to it but if it had been given to you or been part of your educational experience as as a child or youth when it did come to me it was sort of out of the blue I was in a bit of an in-between period of wondering what to to do with with my myself and my career um, and I was in London at the time and a friend took me along to to a performance at Southbank Centre. I'm really pleased to say I, I, I was one of those people that had a, an epiphany, a real epiphany in the theatre of uh, being the last person to leave and just being incredibly inspired and realising that this is what I was looking what, to do. What I was that show that, that brought you that, that eureka well, moment? <laughs> It was uh, it was Shobana Jaya Singh, who works with South South Asian uh, dance style, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, but in a very sort of contemporary way, um, with some fantastic live musicians. It was a very striking 
And the following week, my the same friend took me back to see another show by Hoffe Schechter. Tell me then about your own show, Douglas, uh, which will run at the, the Samuel Beckett Theatre as part of, of the Dublin Dance Festival. Douglas puts a, a lone performer, male performer on stage, that's me, amongst a number of quite simple objects like chairs, uh, rope and some weights um, and various other bits and bobs that you might uh, recognise that you'd certainly find in a theatre space. It really sets out with a, a choreographic objective of trying to think about choreography extended beyond the human body alone. So I bring these objects uh, into a place of having some kind of control or agency over my body and, and try to sort of create this environment where a sort of choreographic ecology, I suppose, emerges through, through interaction with these objects. Robbie, I know you're working on a particular project in Edinburgh, but I, I think you're, you're generally based in the Highlands. And tell me about your work and the shape it takes and the context within which you make it. I am based just north of Inverness and it's a very rural environment. I live just outside of a village and my main dance space that I use is the local village hall. Um, I'm quite lucky in that the hall keeper gives me a key and I let myself in and out and I have a, a, a very reasonable deal with them. And and this, this suits me very well. I think uh, although it's where I grew up and it's an important place for me in many ways the environment there definitely affects and forms my work I think that this work Douglas I'm presenting in, in Dublin originated in the outdoors through me acknowledging everyday tasks um, and connections through objects with you know sort of chopping wood or tying tying things together or kind of tasks around survival I guess uh, veg patches and so on and a sort of incidental interactions with objects and, and materials um, but I think there's definitely a strong sense of that place in the work I suppose there's an indirect uh, link to Yeats not so much in your show as in in your name and your lineage um, as a sing you have I think a direct connection to John Millington sing yeah, that's right. He was my great-great-uncle, which means my grandfather's uncle. Of course, I uh, never got to meet J.M. Singh, but uh, I've certainly heard stories from relatives and, and was fortunate enough to meet um, a great-aunt who knew him personally. Would you ever consider looking to his work as an inspiration for your own dance practice? I've thought about it a lot and uh, I'm very aware of his work. But what strikes me about J.M. Singh actually is, is more the, the man himself than his work. And uh, I've certainly felt very inspired by his background. He was definitely the sort of black sheep of the family in a way in, in that he he didn't sort of follow the the quite evangelical uh, upbringing and was uh, was sort of left academic study in order to go and uh, learn music and uh, write and mix with artists in Europe. And, and this wasn't particularly encouraged by his family. And although my, my family have been very supportive, there's definitely a... a you know, coming from science and moving into sort of studying the environment and natural sciences and 
in in terms of art it's definitely a connection i feel with with him and and for that reason he's very inspiring to me philip connaughton what was your path into into your dance practice again you have a a show which we can look forward to this year and we've spoken before but remind me about how you found dance Uh, and in a sense I was I thought of you when Julie was talking about the the young boy in Ring's End saying Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. come in here's the show and you found dance very early on I think well, yeah, I think also for me it was something that was very uh, natural and it was almost an, an innate um, need uh, to begin dancing. In fact, in, in this talk that I'm doing during the festival, in this lecture demonstration, which is kind of a bit of a show, but uh, I, I, I have to mention that one of my earlier memories is kind of dancing Swan Lake in the hallway of my house in Ballymun. And it was the kind of, it, the hallway was the longest space where you could have a good run at something and really go for a bit of a jump. You couldn't do any circular movement, but it was kind of linear and I was dancing Swan Lake I didn't know what Swan Lake was I don't know where I heard about Swan Lake but you know my parents came into the room and they said oh would you would you like to go to dance classes and I said yes of course now you understand me and, <laughs> I and, thought and you'd never ask I thought you'd never ask and and then it kind of it was very organic I kind of be- began my training and then ended up going over to London and and then living abroad for many years and uh, uh, I lived in Barcelona for 14 years although I always kept a foot in Irish territory and was always performing and dancing here as well so I moved back four years ago and started working on my own choreography and it's all as I said it's been very organic which I think for me has been very important and I, I think it would be fair to say that as, as a dance artist and choreographer you, you have this strong belief in, in the power of repetition you know the, 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 in order to build a familiarity with and confidence in the art form you know the power of what's done over and over and maybe that's an innate part of dance anyway and is is it accurate to say that in a way part of your contribution to the festival and over the last couple of years you know has been about introducing dance and concepts of dance uh, to an audience well you know growing up at a very working class background in Ballymon I suppose I fell into dance in a very particular way and then I've ended up in this incredibly abstract world which again has been a very organic um, movement from A to B and when I'm trying to uh, enlighten people or help people um, find maybe contemporary dance perhaps less alienating because I find that sometimes they have an idea that oh god I'm not going to understand it I'm not going to understand it and that gets in the way of the understanding I tried to explain kind of my own situation which was Actually, through tap dancing, <laughs> and, and or even musical theatre, uh, just uh, that um, repetition of of one movement uh, and practice can uh, deepen your understanding, or repetition of anything can deepen your understanding of anything. And I noticed that it, at the beginning of my career, when I was concentrated more in musical theatre, of course, in contemporary dance, you you might uh, make a piece and you'll perform it five or six times and then you'll go, um, if it's successful, you'll tour it. And if it once every 10 years, you have a really successful piece and you'll get to do it 50 times. So you get a great understanding of it. But um, with musical theatre, even at the age of nine, I was doing Bugsy Malone at the Olympia Theatre and I was doing eight shows a week for two months, which I'm sure these days would be totally illegal. But even at that age, through the sheer repetition trying to be able to survive doing the same thing every night for two months, you had to kind of go into it at a deeper level. Even later on in my career, I did musicals for six months or, or a year. And if you're doing Oklahoma, 
you know, oh, Oklahoma, where the wind, and again the next night, oh, Oklahoma, where the, and then you get into it, and a month later you're thinking, oh my God, how am I going, how am I going to go on stage as a cowboy for another night and make this survive? But something happens, something cliff, clicks, there's a shift, and you notice something, and you get a deeper understanding of it. So you, it, it brings you to the next level, and then something else happens. And it kind of becomes abstract. I always think of it like, you know, TV series that run for too long. They kind of end up kind of falling into this odd abstraction, which sometimes is quite wonderful. And I think life is like that. And definitely um, anything that you look at, you'll find a great deal of complexity to and enjoyment of. And, and that's what I try to convey to people sometimes. So it's just another way in. There are thousands of ways into things. This is just one example. So repetition I find very interesting. And I, I think something of this you will explore in in your performance, uh, Dance Uncovered, during, during the festival. And again, there's a reference, I think, back to, to that uh, pivotal Bugsy Malone show for you. Yeah, it's crazy because um, we did, <laughs> I did, when I was doing Bugsy Malone, I, ha- I had this part where I sang and tap danced and uh, we did um, a TV, a live TV performance of Sunday night at the Gaiety or Sunday night it was Brendan Grace and he presents it and, and I have this I went to the RTE archives and got it and you know I've kind of fiddled around with it and it's on stage with me and then I have uh, this piece that I danced at the Dublin Fringe Festival last year a, a projection also where I'm dancing naked and painted pink and I kind of say to the audience well how did I get from A to B what happened and then through a series of anecdotes which you can connect or not connect as you so wish but they're kind of interesting I think maybe we can we can figure out how that actually happened you would argue i think as well that there is and we were talking about this earlier a, a sense and, and especially an emerging sense of uh, an aesthetic in in irish dance that there's something palpable something almost definable absolutely i mean when i began my career when i began to train uh, contemporary dance was still um of course it ha- it had been it, ha- it had been throughout our history existed in the 20th century and right up but it was still very unknown and it was still very uh subculture and I've been lucky enough to uh, that my career has coincided with the growth of contemporary dance in Ireland. And I've been lucky to reap the benefits of that and see an amazing um, uh, growth in audience and, and facilities for dance. As Maria was saying earlier, Dance Ireland. God, these wonderful studios that we have in the middle of Dublin now, which we didn't have. And, you know, pre-boom when you were touring around Ireland and it was raining and you had to shift your choreographic structure because there was a bucket that was taking <laughs> catching the rain <laughs> dripping through the ceiling and now we've got these wonderful art centers but having lived abroad and danced abroad for many years um one of the things that i noticed for example i was living in barcelona for 14 years and dancing there and i noticed that when i came back to ireland and especially when i started making my own work that i wasn't quite happy making my work over there and when I'd come home I'd, I'd feel good about it, it would feel right and I suddenly began to realise that it was um, that we had, although we were in Ireland we were making, we are making very very different work, there's a common background and I'm not just referring to um, Irish born artists, I'm, I'm talking to Irish artists that are, ma- or artists that are making their work in Ireland wherever they're from and uh, I was very pleased to see this this uh, aesthetic similar aesthetic if you if, if you could say that and and also but I think more than just an aesthetic it's also a confidence a self-confidence in, in, in that what we're producing is valid so that we can go anywhere 
uh, you know, recently, the last piece I made was a collaboration that I made in Paris in April. And uh, I was working with all of these French artists and these fr- French uh, lighting designers. And one of them uh, totally disagreed with me, uh, our aesthetic. We had a very different aesthetic. And he's, I said, I want it like this. And he said, but I think it should be like this. And, you know, maybe at another stage, 10 years ago, I would have gone, oh, he probably knows better. Whereas now I'll go, no, this is what I want. And this is what I want to convey. And you I dig think, your heels in and say... And you dig your heels in and mm. you're proud and you know and you have confidence and you stand behind what you want. And I think that's a classic example of where Irish contemporary dance is internationally these days. Is there a danger, as Maria and Julia were saying, that uh, this moment might be undermined, if not lost, by a failure to support it in terms of funding and, and recognition? I mean, that's uh, that's obviously a very realistic and frightening scenario, but it is our responsibility as artists to fight that in every way that we possibly can. Also, the tragic thing about the artist is that the artist will do it one way or another. So you can either support your artists and your culture and 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 help uh, help it grow alongside your country or or it can just it can just struggle along and kind of you know i i, I I don't, I don't really quite know how to describe that, but I, I, I often find that it's, it's kind of a cruel tragedy that the artist, of course, will do it anyway. So they strive and they strive and they strive and it could always be better. Maria, before we talk about your show, Blanca, let's listen to some music from it. from Maria Nilsson Waller's show Blanca which will run at the Project Arts Centre as part of the Dublin Dance Festival Maria tell me a little bit about that show Blanca it seems to fuse many cultural references from Sweden Um, it was asked as a commission from a theatre in Sweden uh, in the region of Jämtland which is also where I was born so actually now I come back as an Irish artist doing work in Sweden (laughs) and just to tell you a little bit Jämtland it's uh, the region is quite large. The area is almost the size of Ireland and only 100,000 people living there. So there's one city and the rest is villages. So the commission was to make a dance piece that would be small enough to tour out to small villages and to be able to bring, uh, kind of similar, to bring dance out to audiences who have never really had a chance maybe to come in contact with it as an art form before. Um, I was asked to make something that would be only three by four metres which is a huge challenge. So 
in a way, as Liz Roach goes into the theatre thinking, what can I do with this magnificent big space? I had to think, what can I do with this very, very small space? <laughs> um, so I knew that I wanted to work with a solo and also that I wanted to try to in, uh, engage kind of computer games and that kind of like projections and live video visual design. I also, there's an Irish guy actually from theatre background, Jose Miguel Jimenez, who made all the video work for the piece. Uh, and also I invited two Swedish musicians to create uh, the sound for it all. So we came together and we actually, we had the opportunity to really work together and to improvise, to talk uh, a lot during the process of making the piece, which has been going on for almost a year now. Yeah, we knew we wanted to work with computer games and that kind of thing, but also with creation myths and uh, as well very linked to that landscape and that nature in this uh, in this area, which is, I don't know how to describe the winters, I suppose, lots of snow, dark, dark blue, black nights, um, the wildlife, the, the lakes, the forests, all of those things I think are kind of incorporated into the work. Uh, fascinating to hear that, that that music, you know, the, the the electronic sound there that, that mm. conjures so much. I mean, and I suppose again, it's 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 part of a, a visual imagination. I mean, we, mm. hear, we can we can conjure with that. What does it mean to you to have uh, this show in in the project as part of of this year's festival? Um, I think it's really exciting to be able to show this work for the Irish audience uh, because it is so influenced by. By the, that place and Sweden, um, we t- we premiered the piece in February actually in Sweden. So it would be kind of it went down really well there. A lot of young audience really liked it, but also for adults, like loads of people were really really gripped and very emotional. There were tears and you know. So I was surprised that it was very strongly received actually from adult audience. And so yeah, obviously interesting to see there is a difference between the two places also in in how audience re- react. And live music as, as part of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, Julia, I'm always interested in that notion again of the balance of uh, live music, recorded music, no music within dance. And looking across the spectrum of this year's festival, where again does does music come in and out and how important is it, I suppose, again, within the, the overall context of, 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 of dance and this festival? Uh, Well, music's always very important and I think it's great if we can involve uh, real live musicians, both the Irish ones and um, international ones too, of course. Music, you know, inevitably it's a cost. You've got to pay pay musicians. Often you have to pay them more than the dancers, actually, (laughs) is the terrible truth. Um, But, uh, you know, it adds an enormous amount to a performance to have the music live. It creates a whole different layer of atmosphere. There is an event actually we have at the National Concert Hall involving the Irish choreographer Aoife McAtamney. This is on the last day of the festival and she's working with a scratch orchestra. So this is a bit high risk. You know, they rehearse for the afternoon together and then they do it. So kind of fascinated to see what exactly this orchestra is. You know, it's the sort of volunteers turn up for it. It's going to be in the engineering library then. We're not on the in the main console, <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> probably just as well. Uh, and that involves the, the composer Nick Roth is working with Aoife on that one. Philip, is, is there much music in, in your performance and 
Will you sing? I will sing a little bit, <laughs> but uh, not for the audience's enjoyment, I'm afraid. But um, no, I just I, I, I sing uh, as an example of, of, of some of repetition. Uh, but um, there is a little bit of sound. And so the music is maybe some sort of soundscape. And I do bring up the idea of of sound and music and what music is and that perhaps uh, you can have uh, accompanying music, you can dance to the music, it can be rhythmical, it, you can follow it, or it can be just there existing at the same time as you in space. But also, uh, not only, uh, one, one doesn't only have to think of music, but one can think of rhythm, and, and that can be musical. You know, if you see dancers dancing in unison or working off each other or moving off each other, this creates a, a type of sound. There's also the sound of breath, there's also the sound of the feet on the ground there's many things like that so yeah many ways of making music uh, Deirdre Mulroney as an avid uh, dance supporter lover mm-hmm. um, how will you be spending the days of the festival I mean are there particular shows you're looking forward to um, yeah well I'm really looking forward to Meg Stewart at the Abbey and obviously Liz's show as well and um, Emma O'Kane's show uh, Jockey is also uh, bound to be a very fascinating one Maria's show Philip's show <laughs> uh, yeah no it's it's a wonderful programme actually I'm also really looking forward to the film about uh, Sasha Valls's work at the IFI I think that'll be there's a documentary and a corper a documentation of one of her pieces as well I think that'll be great there's a super uh, German lineup this year which I'm really looking forward to and uh, Julia what are you going on to do after Dublin I don't know yet actually I've got a number of irons in the fire and the usual dilemma of do I want to earn lots of money doing something that is less creative or do I want the more creative job that's probably going to be less lucrative (laughs) you know that's the old chestnut isn't it (laughs) and of course you know which way you'll go (laughs) Uh, thank you all so much the Dublin Dance Festival 2015 runs from the 19th to the 30th of May our thanks to Julie Carruthers Deirdre Mulrooney Philip Connaughton Maria Nilsson Waller and Robbie Singh on next week's Arts Tonight Dermot Healy and consider his writing his writing life and his literary legacy join us then good night Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Clean and the Unknown